This is Laura McGuire, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You wouldn't jump in the cockpit of an F-35 and think you're going to take it for a spin. So it's like, okay, well, just because we have the equipment doesn't mean we have the skills to be able to operate that equipment safely. are tuned into episode 4.7 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS by MND, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Welcome to 2020. Sure does feel like we're living in the future here. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope everybody had a a safe and fun-filled holiday week. Um, Seems like it's extending a little bit further back than a week these days, um, but I hope everybody's getting some good, fun and safe turns out there, no matter what you're riding. Hopefully it's powder filled. We sure do have a great show for you lined up today. First, I want to give a big thanks to our, the sponsors of our show, TAS by MND, makers, installers, maintainers, engineers of the Gazex and the Obelex systems. You've probably seen traveling throughout your holiday travels this winter um, on many highway passes throughout the Mountain West and within ski areas as well. These remote avalanche control systems oftentimes can, can keep motorists safe, communities safe, as well as the skiing public within ski areas safe. Um, and the, one of the best things about it is a lot of times it, it doesn't have to put avalanche workers in harm's way. So TAS by MND has been a big supporter since day one, and we thank you very much. Ten Barrel Brewing based out of Bend, Oregon, but of course can be found just about anywhere you look for beer these days. And they've also got brew pubs in other cities besides Bend. They've got one in Portland. They've got one in Denver. They've got one in San Diego. They've got one in Boise. I just went to the Boise one last week. And man, these people know how to have a good time. And that extends beyond their brew pubs um, and locations where you can drink their beer. They know how to have a good time in the snow. Uh, This winter, they came out with two ski and snowboard movies. Hold My Beer is a snowboard film. And then Walks This is a ski film featuring Lucas Walks, a Bend native. Um, So be sure to go to their website and check out the calendar of events. They still have some showings of those films that may be coming to a location near you. And as those film premieres wrap up, they have the Hella Big Air competition that will be traveling around the western U.S., Um, sure to be a good time, as well as their beer cat tour. That's right, they took a snow cat and they put a pub on it and they come around to different local hills and they give you beer. How cool is that? 
So make sure to support the brewery that supports the things that you like to do. Uh, check out their Pray for Snow beer. 1% of all the sales goes to protect our winters. Such a great organization to, to um, give some money to. So drink beer, support POW. There you go. To kick off the show, we have a little um, kind of mini interview with CJ Svela, who is the vice president of the Association of Professional Patrollers. So CJ is going to tell us all about what the APP is all about and some of the educational offerings that they have going on for this winter. So here we go with CJ Svela. All right, CJ Svela, welcome to the show. Thank you, Caleb. Yeah. CJ is the vice president of the Association of Pro Patrollers in the, the snow and avalanche realm here. And, and why don't you tell us a little bit about your organization? Well, the Association of Professional Patrollers started in 1969 and progressed from what was called the Far West uh, Patrol Association, which was actually founded by Squaw Valley and the Tahoe area and the basin and the surrounding patrollers around there. Uh, and then eventually kind of progressed into a certification organization uh, where there are nine certifications to become a full certified APP patroller. And we've always done education along with that as well. And this is all about progressing the ski patrol as a industry and career. So what are those nine certifications or disciplines? Our certifications include skiing, snowboarding, along with uh, toboggan handling, rope rescue, um, risk management, hill safety, first aid, and we go into the avalanche science, rescue, and explosives mitigation. All right. And so that certification sounds like it's also some education of, of people that are already patrollers or people that want to become patrollers, or how does that work? All of the above. Uh, yeah, we, in addition to becoming a, going through the certification process, you have to educate yourself. And uh, traditionally, we've always relied on the individual patrollers to educate themselves, but we found as an organization the last 10 years that we should be the ones actually educating and progressing this, uh, this career as a, as a career field. So we want to progress the patrolling as a legitimate career, which has always been thought of as, you know, seasonal college kid kind of deal, where there are a lot of people that last throughout their lifetime um, as a patroller. And there's a lot to do with patrolling involving risk management, hill safety, high risk of costs and payouts in case somebody sues, that sort of thing. And also, uh, injury to life and limb, not only as a patroller, but also to the guests. And we want to provide that experience and that education, the certification to the patroller to be a uh, avenue for um, a ski area to invest in. And so the, the APP, is this in, at every ski resort in the country or how does that work? How many, how many members do you have and how do you become a member of the APP? So generally the, not everybody is involved with the APP or the Association of Professional Patrollers. Traditionally, it's a national ski patrol has kind of been the overlaying blanket for a lot of ski patrols, which also does a lot of stuff with the volunteer side. We're APP, uh, we're not a selective group. We're not an exclusive group. We're very inclusive. We want to involve any and all patrollers, but we tend to tailor more to the professional uh, day in, day out ski patrollers that uh, 
rely on the heavy skills such as the tech rescue, the avalanche science, the forecasting, the explosives, the risk management, accident investigation, and so on. Uh, so generally, we since APP started in the Tahoe Basin, it's been kind of more towards the West Coast. So Oregon, Washington, uh, California, Idaho, Nevada, and New Mexico. And some spots here and there, depending on people that have come through the program that have left to go places like Colorado and Utah and such. Um, but we are always looking to expand and have other areas such in the Wasatch, Colorado, uh, Montana to be able to host an event or, or invite us to come over and see what we do, not only as a certification, but more of an education uh, side of things. All right. And so just going back to the certification, you have certain standards, I assume. And then does a certifying body go to a ski area where you have APP members and, and go through that certification process? So the certification process of the nine certifications uh, involve APP certified patrollers as judges. And to be able to judge, you have to be current uh, with the APP and current full-time uh, or part-time pro patrol status. Um, and to be able to keep up your skills, that sort of thing. Um, so we hold regionalized midwinter clinics uh, throughout the Northwest, Tahoe Basin, Southwest of the United States. And then in the winter and the springtime, I mean, um, we come together for a full five day uh, conference where everybody in the organization is welcome to come and we go through more education um, clinics and uh, certification testings. So what sort of avalanche educational offerings are you hoping to develop in the future or do you already offer? Well, right now, traditionally, we've done avalanche education and snow science and, and explosives work with mitigation. But like I said, this isn't an accredited like through the A3 as of what as it was in the past. Now we have actually partnered with the American Avalanche Institute with Sarah Carpenter, Don Carpenter and, and Don Sheriff to be uh, help us and develop um, professional level avalanche courses that are ski patrol specific. Uh, and we're really excited about that because there's a lot of things that ski patrollers do that say a guide doesn't do, uh, such as actively go out to mitigate avalanche slopes versus where a guide would go out to av uh, avoid avalanches. So we want to focus on ski patrol specific skills in these professional level courses, but uh, keeping it uh, credentialed and um, excited to offer these professional level courses to uh, to ski patrollers. So it'll look like a, essentially a patrol specific Pro 1 and then eventually maybe a patrol specific Pro 2? Or Yeah, so right now uh, with our new partnership with AAI is that we have a what's called a patrol rec 1 or a patrol level 1 which is aimed at the first year, second year mm -hmm. ski patroller to go in line with the professional track of the A3 program. And we're really excited about that. Um, in addition to this is the last year that A3 is uh, offering the Pro 1 bridge exam, we're going to be uh, offering that as well uh, at our mid-winter clinics. Uh, those are the regional clinics. And we're already got those scheduled and for this for this season and eventually go on to have a patrol specific Pro Level 1 or Pro Level 2 um, and then incorporating our avalanche explosives for mitigation into those programs, um, something that I don't think has done, been 
done very much uh, to this day. Yeah, it seems like some great offerings and, and great inroad for newer patrollers seeking out avalanche education prior to their Pro 1. That sounds like it should be really successful for budding patrollers, right? Yeah, it's a, a way to keep the interests uh, alive and keep people, their thoughts into that of this being an actual uh, career field that uh, can be um, worthwhile. Sure. So where can people find out more about the APP or how do they go about becoming members well we are pretty active on social media with instagram and facebook and we have our website www.propatrollers.org we're a 501c3 nonprofit uh, and have been since the beginning and then uh, so we do yearly dues which are 50 dollars a year um, we have actually a really cool special where if you are interested in hosting a app clinic we will give the uh patrollers of the hosting mountain uh free membership for a year okay. and that's our, our a nice in, uh, incentive to be part of the organization or at least have a show you what what we are and who we are and what how we can help uh patrollers all right it sounds like some great continuing education what do you have going on for the midwinter clinics and, and where are they this winter so we have midwinter clinics set up uh for mount hood uh ski bowl in the end of january uh, that is a three-day midwinter clinic in conjunction with a two-day Pro 1 bridge exam following that, as well as Silver Mountain in Idaho. Uh, same thing, three-day midwinter clinic followed by two days of, of the Pro 1 bridge exam. And we are always um, looking to expand different midwinter clinics. Uh, we do midwinter clinics at Arizona Snowball. Um, is a really popular one. You can also check the website for ongoing classes or midwinter clinics or conferences. All right, sounds great. Uh, we're really excited about this partnership with uh, American Avalanche Institute and be able to progress the avalanche education and focusing more on professional patrollers, especially with when it, in regards to avalanche mitigation. Awesome. Another thing I would really like to focus on is the professional uh, avalanche search or rescue. Um, with partnering with AAI, we are hoping to bring that out to the West Coast and um, be able to present and give patrollers an opportunity to take that course because that really is the patroller's bread and butter. Mm -hmm. um, and not only just ski patrollers, but also search and rescue, either paid or volunteer, or and forecasters. So what are some other ways that the APP is supporting professional patrollers? So the APP is a nonprofit 501c3, and our main objective is giving back to the patrol. And that includes scholarship funds. So part of our budget and our annual budget is giving back to patrollers who apply for scholarships and that can send anybody to National Avalanche School, to ISSW, dog schools, their own individual avalanche certifications, uh, and so on. Um, as long as it's professional patrol related uh, um, certifications, even uh, rope rescue, uh, Sprat level, OSHA, and so on. Yeah, well, membership certainly does have its benefits, it sounds like. Very much. and. Uh, as I stated before, uh, we are 501c3, so all the funds go back to the patrol. Awesome. Well, thanks, CJ, for coming on the show and talking a little bit about the Association of Professional Patrollers. Thank you very much, Caleb. Yeah, cheers. All right. Thanks, CJ. 
Next up, we have a, a, a great interview with Laura McGuire. If you've been going around to any of the Snow and Avalanche workshops recently, you probably recognize Laura's name. She certainly made the rounds around the, the Snow and Avalanche workshops this fall. And I got to sit down with her while I was in Jackson. And we talked all about some of the research that she's been doing um, in her graduate both her master's and her PhD graduate research. Um, Laura's all about thinking about how we think. She does a lot of thinking. And she's really great at explaining some of the things that I had never really thought about um, in terms of the way that we make decisions within high-risk environments. Um, so it's a pretty hot topic these days. It took me about three or four times to listen to this interview to really synthesize everything that's there. And I'm, I honestly, I'm still probably working on it. So um, hope you enjoy the interview with Laura McGuire. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Laura. I was hoping you could introduce yourself, tell our listeners your background, both academic and your interest in the realm of snow and avalanches. Okay, well... Prior to being a professional nerd for a living as a PhD student, um, I joke that I kind of had a pre-tirement because I spent most of my 20s um, living out of a van, ski bumming and climbing and working seasonal forestry jobs to be able to spend more time in the mountains. Um, And then as I was working through that, I sort of tracked into industrial safety and risk management. And as I was working through the different kinds of frameworks and models and practices that they said, you know, generated safety or created safety, I started to see this bigger and bigger gap between my experiences in the backcountry and in forestry and what it was they were actually telling me was creating safety. Um, And so that uh, led me to go back to school. Uh, I did a master's degree in human factors and system safety out of Lund University in Sweden. Uh, And the Swedes take, the Europeans in general, take a very different approach to human factors. They tend to look at the person and the system of work that surrounds that person. So they call it the socio-technical system. And so basically what that means is you're looking at not only the technical skills that are required for um, doing safe work in high-risk, high-consequence type environments, but what are the social and organizational factors that go into setting up the dynamic and setting up the work conditions for that person. Uh, So after I finished that degree, I was still working in an industrial safety context um, and started poking around to see what other kinds of thinking was out there uh, and came across the work of the Ohio State University's Cognitive Systems Engineering Lab uh, and got super interested in what they were doing. And it just really resonated again with my experiences from uh, climbing and skiing um, and living in what we call the adaptive universe. Uh, that I decided to quit my job and take the vow of poverty of graduate school and go back to uh, to university to do my doctoral degree. All right. And, and 
I notice a little twinge of Canadian accent. Are you from north of the border? <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, I grew up uh, north of the Canadian Rockies um, and lived all over British Columbia, uh, but most recently I've been on Vancouver Island. Nice. And, mm -hmm. and grew up skiing and climbing and, and very much in the outdoors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, when you live in Canada, most of the country is wilderness. Uh, and so you learn pretty quickly how to get out there and um, use all of the seasons to your advantage to be able to play and make the most of it. Yeah, what a great playground. Um, so let's dive into what is cognitive systems engineering? So it is a really fancy way of saying that I look at how people work in high risk, high consequence environments. And typically those kinds of environments are technology mediated. So if you think of a pilot who is flying um, a modern aircraft, they're not actually flying the plane in the typical sort of uh, stick and rudder fashion. They're actually flying banks of computer systems. So the I think the last um, statistic that I heard was that the new, uh, you know, sort of 737s have over 30,000 sensors on them. And so that's collecting data about what's happening within the um, plane and it's feeding it to the cockpit through uh, the computer system or through the computer screens. And so so what cognitive systems engineers do is we look at how do we make um, automation better team players with the uh, with their human counterparts. And so it's not all just about technology. Um, it's also about the system of work that surrounds uh, people. So we look at the practices, the rules, the operating guidelines. Um, we look at resourcing. So what are the sort of skills and capabilities that they need? Um, and we're really looking at how do we uh, support the capacity of a person to handle very dynamic, often very fast changing um, and high consequence type uh, situations and activities. Well, it sounds like that certainly fits the bill for some, some avalanche mitigation work and forecasting work both at uh, maybe a guiding operation or a ski area, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one of the things that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't become immediately apparent when I give that sort of description of the work is, well, what does a pilot have to do with a mountain guide? But what we do is we look at what are the sort of cognitive capabilities of those people that are shared across many domains. So then we start to look at things like, well, what does it mean to be human to be perceiving the environment? So what kinds of cues and information signals are out in the world that we perceive through our senses, through sight, through our ears, through touch, through smell, all of that information kind of comes at us and then we process it in ways that enable us to um, determine what's happening how quickly is that happening? What does that actually mean for the goals and interests that I have uh, in my work? And so in that way, um, there's a lot more in common with the astronauts and the surgeons and the you know military sort of uh, uh, applications than it might originally appear. 
Okay. And so you've been giving some talks and, and presenting some posters at ISSWs going back a, a few ISSWs, I believe. And so what are what's the kind of meat and potatoes of some of that research that you've done about decision-making in high-risk environments specifically for avalanche workers? Yeah. So there was a bit of a vested interest in um, doing research in this domain uh, because I was acutely aware that when I went out touring um, or when I went out, you know, climbing into the mountains, um, that there was a big difference between me as a recreationist and what an expert was doing. But it's not always abundantly apparent what those differences are. You can sort of mimic practices. You can, um, you know, read the books, take the same types of training, but there's fundamental differences between what it means to be a novice and what it means to be an expert in those kinds of environments. So my initial sort of foray into the avalanche, um, or into mountain sort of safety world, uh, was looking at how do we understand the context with which recreation, recreationists go into the mountains. So um, a lot of times people were saying, well, you know, if there was an accident, it was because that person was uh, complacent or because they were, uh, you know, had summit fever. Um, and there was a bit of a disconnect between what I knew about myself and my practices and the people that I climbed and skied with and these really seemingly simplified explanations. So I wanted to understand if there was something more about um, how we approach, how we think about the problem space, um, how we navigate uh, ambiguity and uncertainty, and then how we actually bring together all of our knowledge and our skills and our capabilities in real time to our decision-making um, in the field. Um, so when I started my doctoral program, I got exposed to a whole new range of techniques for being able to understand what expert performance actually looks like. Uh, and a lot of those techniques had to do with how do you break into the black box of cognition? How do you open up someone's head and say, what are you looking at? Why does that, why is that important to you? And then how are you integrating that with your sort of current understanding of what the problem is so that you're better able to anticipate and adapt in real time? Um, and so what so this got really exciting um, because it kind of was like a missing link between some of the interview techniques that we're using currently in the field and some of the survey techniques where we go out and we say, how is it you do what you do? Tell us about your work. But what we know about experts, uh, experts in general is that they're actually often really terrible at telling us how they do what they do. And that's largely because a lot of these processes have become more unconscious. They've become part of the fluency of what it means to, um, to be proficient at a task or an activity. So an example of that is, um, you know, if you ask someone, well, how do you actually assess the, the danger rating out there, they would probably give you some combination of, uh, you know, we do data collection, we look at sort of the past history of what's been going on. Um, and then, you know, I kind of weigh out the 
the likelihood of different events to take place. Uh, and then I think about um, what's coming next and whether this is uh, what kind of an impact this is going to have on the clients or the readers of the bulletin or whoever you're producing the sort of the forecast for. Um, and when you step back and you actually watch them do what they do, or you use some of these other techniques to sort of surface uh some more of their practice, you notice there is a whole lot more going on than just simply, um, you know, technical sequential steps. They're pulling in expertise from other forecasters. They are uh, following up on hunches. They're gathering more information if they don't, um, they're not clear on a certain signal or a cue, what that actually means. So there's a lot of kind of background stuff that's going on. And what I think is interesting about this research is by being able to surface these things, we're better able to train new people coming into the field, um, but we're also better able to understand what kinds of supports are necessary to be able to enable um, practitioners to do what they do and to do it well. So the supports are things like technologies, or it is uh, making sure they have sufficient time to be able to synthesize the data. And if they don't have time, then what are other kinds of techniques that we can use to create some space or to um, cross-check their interpretation uh, so that we're not putting them in situations where they're unable to sort of get out of the consequences as they're incurring? So Laura, I'm interested in some of these tangible tools. Um, I think we come from a little bit different backgrounds of, of kind of theory and practice. And I think that's the essence of the snow and avalanche community at large. And so I'm super interested in, in hearing about what this is gonna look like on the ground. And so what are some of these tangible tools and how can some of your work help a guide or a forecaster or a, a team of avalanche mitigators make better decisions in the field? So this stuff can seem really abstract and really disconnected from what it means to have your skis on the snow. Uh, and when we look at it from a very practical perspective, trying to understand um, the context of work or the system of work that surrounds uh, a forecaster is probably best described through an example um, from uh, the study that I did last year. And so this was uh, at a, a ski resort, sort of a mid-sized coastal ski resort um, with a very experienced forecasting team. Um, they had, uh, you know, they've, they're all quite proficient. They're sort of level one trained guides or sorry, level two trained guides with the CAA, um, professional program. Uh, they have a team of about six or eight, um, technicians that work with them. They have a really well established avalanche safety program that's been, um, continuously improved over the last several years. Uh, and yet they uh, had a surprise inbound release one day that they were telling me about. And um, so the forecaster was really embarrassed as he was telling me this story. He was saying, you know, uh, I, when I had gone in to do my forecast in the morning, I knew that there was potential instabilities that were going to be likely later in the day. Had a lot of accumulation overnight. There was a lot of precipitation called for during the day. Um, didn't have a lot of skier volume on the hill that day. Uh, so he kind of had a sense that there was, um, they had to keep an eye on those problems. 
Uh, and as they were, um, they went out, did their control plan, everything went kind of as intended. Um, and the usual practice for the forecaster on duty was to cycle through, um, you know, giving breaks to the other forecasters and other members of the patrol team, uh, throughout the day. So you'd kind of pop into a bump and, uh, be there for half an hour while they went off skiing. Uh, and, they had uh, one of the members of their control team ended up having a personal emergency and had to leave that day. So they were kind of running one person short. And then they had a fairly significant um, first aid uh, emergency on the front side of the mountain, which occupied another collection of people. Uh, so there was less people out kind of skiing in the terrain, getting information about how the conditions were changing and what kind of impact this was going to have on whether or not they should close this one specific area that he'd been worried about. So he's sitting in the back end of the backside of the mountain in the bump and uh, gets a call on the radio that they'd had um, an inbounds release uh, and a man and his uh, son had been caught up in it uh, and fortunately, fortunately no one was hurt but it was obviously really uncomfortable to the forecaster right because he was like I knew that something was going to happen I should have been um, out there um, I should have sort of taken control of that situation and so to me, this is actually a really informative um, example for the resort itself and for the team, because it says a lot about resources. It says a lot about how your ability to handle the normal disruptions and variation that happens in the operational world, right? How that can have an impact on reducing your margin, reducing your capability to be collecting information and to be continually staying on top of what kinds of um, changes and adaptations might need to be made during the day. So it's informative for the ski resort itself to say, we know that there's going to be times where we're going to be run a little bit thin. Um, so having a collection of um, skilled people that are able to continually be able to um, cover for each other, should there be, should people get sort of pulled away is actually really important. And you don't know that you're going to need those capabilities until you need those capabilities. So there's sort of considerations there for um, for resourcing. There's considerations uh, for training in terms of um, can you bring more junior members up to speed quicker? What are the kinds of things that they need to know? How do they transmit information about the things that they're seeing to the forecaster on duty who's kind of going to have the responsibility for making a call for a closure or not? So another example that's kind of practical, I guess, for this is um, one of the findings from our study was that a lot of the actual work that's required, the cognitive work that is required to um, produce an accurate forecast was actually hidden from the formal protocols. And so what I mean by that is as part of the study, what I did was spend the first uh, little while looking at um, what do the rules say, uh, good forecasting 
practice is? You know, what are the steps? What are the procedures? Um, what kinds of tools are you supposed to use uh, to gather information? You know, the weather telemetry, uh, the past day's reports, those kinds of things. Um, and when I so I, I looked through these uh, protocols and it was like, okay, that seems pretty reasonable. This is what they do. Uh, but then when I actually watched how they, what kinds of information they gathered and what they actually did, and I asked them about their practice, it turns out that's only a small fraction of what you actually need to be able to keep an accurate mental model of the conditions. So what I'm about to say is not going to be a surprise to anybody who works in the industry. Um, but they gave me example after example of all of this peripheral work, this off-duty work that they did to be able to sort of stay in the loop about what was happening. So this was things like uh, installing, this is a coastal resort, you know, keep in mind. So they'd install a rain gauge on their deck at home uh, so that, you know, when they got up in the morning before they had their first cup of coffee, they could take a look and see how much precipitation had accumulated. So then they start to form expectancies about what's happening higher up on the mountain. Same thing. They'd say, you know, yeah, I lie in bed and I can hear the wind. You know, there's like pine cones hitting my roof. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to have to really start thinking about wind loading tomorrow. Um, so they also spent, uh, they also carpooled up to the mountain together every day. And so this is an extra half an hour that they spend talking about what happened yesterday? What did you see? What kinds of control mechanisms did you use? Um, you know, what does that actually mean given the last couple of weeks or given what we know is in the snowpack already? Uh, as they're driving up, of course, they're watching the snow blow over the hood of the car. They're looking at, you know, what's accumulated on the side of the road. All of these things that are normal sort of cues and information that you use in your practice, this is actually helping to sort of supplement and to keep your mental model fresh and keep your mental model updated. So, Apart from the obvious, uh, you're doing a lot of extra work that you're not getting paid for, the fact that this isn't in the protocols that is sort of like this is tacit knowledge that people develop as they become more expert and more proficient means that someone new coming into the industry might hear that these things are, yeah, you know, it's good to check in with people and see what they've heard and what they've seen. But there's evidence to suggest that this stuff is not actually a best practice or it's a nice to have, that it's actually critical to be able to um, make sense of a really complex phenomenon. So that's not an entirely new finding because uh, Laura Adams and Ian Stewart Patterson have written papers about mental models um, in professional guiding situations. And even back in like 1981, Ed LaChapelle talked about how professional forecasters were really reluctant to disrupt their regular routine during the season because they knew that it takes a lot more effort and there's cues and signals that might be really relevant to your um, forecasting that might get missed if you take a couple of days out of the field. 
I think that's a really good point for all the budding avalanche professionals out there. I mean, you can't really do this work with just one foot in and one foot out. You know, you really have to jump in with both feet. And it's not like you go to work and punch in, and that's when you turn your avalanche brain on, right? And so, um, and, I, and I'm sure many people listening to this can can relate to that. So that's a really good point. Um, one thing that I've been kind of thinking about as you've been um um, explaining some of this is kind of the changing conditions factor, right? And so I, the way I think of it is we personally and as a team of professionals kind of have a, no matter what our operation is, we have a bandwidth for information, right? And changing conditions. And so you had a great example of, of when a operational team kind of got caught off guard and maybe there were just too many changing factors for that bandwidth, right? Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at here? Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. That's like, you've hit the nail on the head there in the sense that, so at a individual level, part of what human factors is, is also these perceptual capabilities, these um, attentional management capabilities, um, and your capacity to sort of reason about what's happening in the world around you. And so from a perceptual perspective, you of course need to have a team of people to be able to gather information. You as one person are not gonna be able to cover the entire terrain. Um, and even if you were doing that on your own, by the time, you know, in potentially very changing, very dynamic conditions, by the time you finish sampling in one area, you know, the conditions, that data has changed, right? And so your need to have continual um, updating, continual information to update your mental model means you need to have other people. Um, from a attention management perspective, you also kind of pointed to another interesting aspect of what does this actually mean in real work settings? Because we are never just doing synthesis of avalanche data. So we are rarely, if ever, just focusing on sort of the technical synthesis of trying to define what's happening in the snowpack. So what I mean by this is that you often have multiple concurrent sort of lines of reasoning that are going on, and those are spread over different kinds of goals. So an example of this, if you're a mountain guide, is your sort of priority or your overarching goal is to bring your clients back at the end of the day. So in that way, you're focused on understanding the implications of skiing different slopes, but that's also relative to making sure that your clients are skiing the lines that they want to ski and that they're having a really good experience. Part of them having a really good experience is your ability to read and to monitor how tired are they, are they getting, um, you know, like, are they concerned about, uh, you know, social dynamics that are happening in the group? Is their equipment working properly? So you are looking, you have multiple different goals and multiple different things that you are thinking about while you are also thinking about the, the danger. So this is not inconsequential because as we were talking about earlier, 
we're managing our attention over different kind of aspects of uh, practice out there. So we're kind of our, if we think about attention as being like a flow across multiple different activities, it's not like first I'm going to check in and see how my clients are doing. Then I'm going to see, you know, like if this aspect, if I should be concerned about this aspect, then I'm going to make sure that, you know, I tell that joke that makes everyone you know, want to want to tweet about what a great trip they had so that I have work next year, right? We're instead doing this in a very fluid and a very integrated manner. We're spending a little bit of time focusing our attention over here, maybe collecting some data by asking people about how they're feeling, how they're doing, uh, you know, while we're also going off to, um, you know, do a little uh, punch test as you're kind of skiing past something. So it's a very dynamic and interactive process. So Laura, that all makes a lot of sense to me. Um, And we've been talking in sort of the operational context, professional context. So let's kind of take it back to the recreational skier. How can a recreational skier better understand some of this and, and make better decisions because of it? Mm-hmm. So as I said earlier, a lot of my interest in this was to kind of validate and verify and check in to see where I was at. Uh, I've been ski touring for about 20 years um, and I have I would say more than a base level of proficiency. I establish good practices for myself and my touring partners. I really try and focus on making sure that there's a lot of cohesion around what the plan is. You know, we talk a lot about changes to the plan and what those implications are. Um, I try and tick as many boxes as I can. But one of the things that struck me in doing this research and particularly in seeing how much and how continuously uh, professionals are actually thinking about the problem, uh, I realized that, you know, my weekend warrior sort of status starting to read the bulletin maybe on Thursday or Friday and then, um, you know, heading out on Saturday morning is actually probably fairly insufficient. So I think that there's the takeaway lesson for recreationists here is to to be a bit humble in the face of the complexity of the problem. Just because we have the skis, just because we have the skins, just because we can get out there doesn't necessarily mean that we should. So that's kind of a controversial thing to say, and I'll probably get a lot of... Um, emails from that. Uh, and I'm, I'm definitely not suggesting that people don't go into the backcountry, but I'm suggesting that we be, a, we calibrate ourselves to what it is that we can actually know. So the takeaways, I think, for, um, for recreational uh, backcountry users, skiers, sledders, climbers, snowshoers, whatever it is that you're doing out there, is to be humble about what it is that you can actually know about the problem. And I think that there is an element of this that uh, we see in professional practice that is all about iterative, continuous improvement, um, and that you are never really done with learning. You're never really done with kind of interrogating how you do things and how you think about um, your own practice. 
So I've heard many avalanche professionals talk about intuition and making at least part of their decisions based on their intuition. I think it's fair to say that intuition um, comes from your experience base. I've also heard it said that for the recreationist population, we should think about ditching the intuition and make it intentional, right? And so maybe that's because more recreationists don't have that depth of experience base that professionals have. Um, one thing that we're teaching a lot of in avalanche education are checklists. And I think that's super helpful um, for the recreationist population in the backcountry. Um, I know this is kind of three different questions, but do you care to comment on any of this? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all related, so you have to ask them together. Um, but let's break them down a little bit. So that first part you were talking about um, intuition, expert intuition, um, and it coming from experience. And someone like Gary Klein, who's done a lot of work, um, would say this is actually something called recognition prime decision making. So experts have a larger collection of experiences. They've seen more different kinds of conditions and the outcomes of those different kinds of conditions. So they're able to pattern match a little bit quicker, a lot quicker um, than a novice would, who's trying to sort of construct uh, a representation of what's going on based on things they've read in a book, based on stories that they've heard from other people. Um, so that sort of expert um uh, the recognition prime decision making is really driven by um, the ability to recognize how what signals are important about a, a certain type of um, situation and what are the implications for those. So another element, I think, of kind of expertise and that has to do with this sort of pattern recognition is where we where we start to look at what's the difference between experts and novices? And so there's a lot of research that's been done. There's a whole field on sort of expertise um, and some really interesting work by uh, Feltovich, Spiro, and Coulson, if you're kind of an academic literature, um, looking at what is the nature of expertise? How is expertise flexibly applied? So how is it that they recognize how they can bring their knowledge and experience to bear in conditions that they've never seen before and still have that be relevant. So um, some of the things that I think we can take away from that field is that experts are, or novices are not just experts with less experience, but there's some fundamental differences in how they store information, how they're able to um, access their knowledge, how they're able to bring um, relevant skills and experience to bear in um, time pressured, very ambiguous type situations. So an example of that might be where, uh, you know, someone skis out onto a slope and they get a gut feeling that it's just not safe to be out there. Um, they may not be able to tell you precisely what 
what they're uncomfortable about, but there could be very subtle sort of perceptual cues, a slight shift, the consistency of the snow changes a little bit. Um, you know, there's an almost imperceptible sound of the snowpack settling. Um, so they may not be sort of consciously aware of these signals, but they're picking them up and they're recognizing that they uh, are in a qualitatively different space than they thought they were. Mm. So experts are more finely tuned to be able to access that kind of knowledge and to be able to understand the implications of that variation in those signals. Certainly something very important to listen to, even if you don't know why you're listening to it, perhaps. So bringing it back to for the recreationist population, ditching the intuition and, and adopting intention, utilizing checklists... How do you think checklists can help the, the recreationist community, backcountry community, um, make this more of a system, right? Instead of just kind of willy-nilly moving through decision-making in the avalanche environment. So I think that it is useful to kind of separate what does it mean to be an, a novice and an expert and what kinds of things those tools would do for both both types of populations, right? And the people that are in between that on the on that spectrum in between those ends. Um, for the novice, uh, it can help to develop certain kinds of consistencies in practice. So it provides what we call a uh, cognitive artifact or a cognitive aid. So instead of having to keep all of these things in your head to remember all of these things, we can create an external thing, an artifact that helps us to remember those. So it's less kind of cognitive work to be thinking about, okay, now what else did I need to remember to have in my pack before I left this morning? Um, and frees you up to be thinking about other kinds of aspects of the problem. So there's another way to think about the use of checklists um, in expert performance. And uh, just as every tool can be a weapon if you hold it right, um, the checklist can actually disrupt some of the more sophisticated lines of reasoning, some of the more sophisticated practices that experts have um, developed to adapt to the demands of their work. So an example of this could be if you require, you know, in the morning for your patrol team to go to stop and go through a checklist, uh, but what we know about morning time in the patrol shack is that, you know, people are rushing to get out the door, that you have to get the hill open by nine o'clock in the morning, and there's only, you know, so much daylight, there's only so much time that you have available to actually get out and, you know, ski or control routes. Um, then you might actually be introducing a practice that kind of erodes some of the potential operating margins for these teams. So it may, be the, that the checklist itself um, gets used in a more adaptive fashion or that teams kind of develop a way to meet the same underlying functional requirement, which is, hey, let's check that we've got the basics down uh, before we go into the field uh, without necessarily having to do it in a very prescriptive way. So what I got that from that is maybe we shouldn't put our checklist blinders on, right? 
Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way of uh, of putting it. And I, I would also say that context matters yeah. a really big, uh, or a context matters a lot when we think about how tools actually inform um, practice. Sure. So Laura, last year at ISSW in Innsbruck, you said something that sparked some interest. You said, if there's one piece of advice I would give to the avalanche community, is to stop looking at human factors as a pejorative. There's much more to be understood about how we navigate the world that can help us move forward on safety. So I was hoping you could elaborate a bit on that and and what does that mean to you? We currently define human factors in the avalanche community as being almost exclusively about heuristics, the use of heuristics and biased thinking. So talking about um, the use of heuristic, the negative use of heuristics and biased thinking can have limited utility because oftentimes we kind of label these things after something's gone wrong. There's been a near miss or someone got caught in an avalanche and we say, well, it's pretty evident that they, you know, fell into these sort of these traps But that kind of drives a lot of reporting underground because nobody wants to be called out, um, you know, as having poor practice. And it also kind of undermines the undermines the context in which those uh, decisions and actions were actually taken. So when we have the benefit of hindsight and we can look back, we have all the information available to us. But the person at that point in time, just before the accident or the near miss happens, has partial or incomplete information. There's uncertainty about whether a certain course of action is going to result in a poor outcome or a good outcome. Um, But as soon as they take action, it resolves a lot of that uncertainty. So it's easier to look backwards and say, well, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, But that also, we don't really learn anything from that because kind of the only ways that you can move on that is just to say, well, don't do that again in the future. So instead, if we try and bring ourselves back to the point in time that that person who was trying to make that decision was at and say, what kinds of things were they dealing with? What kinds of choices and options were actually available to them? Um, what what signals may have been present in the environment, but were noticed or unnoticed? And then how was it that they actually made interpreted those signals? So this gives us a number of different ways to say, well, what might have kind of broken down for us in this situation? Because if it's that they missed a signal, they weren't able to see it, Was that based on knowledge? Did they not know that that was an important thing to be looking for? Was that based on that they were distracted? Maybe they had um, a new touring partner with them who was kind of struggling a little bit. So they were focusing on making sure that, you know, that person was able to cope with the the way the day was progressing. Um, Or were there other kind of conditional conditions that, um, we can adjust or that we can point to and say, hey, like, let's use these to build up our future patterns, our future sort of um, uh, capabilities in being able to recognize the conditions. 
So another way in which um, kind of labeling human factors as heuristics and biases is that it sort of forces us into this hindsight judgment, right? And so we look at, uh, after something has happened, we look at it and we say incredulously, how could they have done that? Instead of looking at it from a position of inquiry and trying to learn from it and saying, how is it that they would have done that or that they could have done that? What made sense to them to actually take that action or make that decision? Because in that way, we put ourselves into, into the boots, into the skin track, and we kind of create opportunities for us to say, how might I also, in that exact same condition, might have made that same decision? So it gives us a lot more um, room to learn. Um, it creates a culture where we can share stories about near misses and about uh, kind of times where the decisions that we made or the actions that we made were not appropriate for those kinds of conditions. Hmm. That's a really good point. And, and I think um, it will be adopted by the, the avalanche community as a whole to kind of shift our way of thinking um, about some of these accidents and near misses. One of the things that can be really detrimental to learning is a phenomenon that we call distancing through differencing. And so it's an approach to thinking about accidents or near misses or other people's experiences where we look at it and we say, well, I would never do that. I would never have put myself in those conditions. I wouldn't have gone touring with that group of people. Mm. I wouldn't have been out in those conditions. And so that may very well be true, but focusing on the ways in which you might have been also in those conditions helps you to learn more and it helps us to have empathy for each other in terms of being able to recognize when someone else is not noticing uh, conditions that could be problematic for them down the line. Right, absolutely. So when we think about moving forward on safety, I know I've said that a number of times um, throughout this interview, I think what's really important to recognize is that this is not me or, uh, you know, some expert from, uh, you know, who's sort of looked at this stuff in great detail coming into the industry and being able to tell you prescriptively how we need to do things. This is very much a collaborative effort of understanding the skills and experience that it takes to be able to do what you do as a mountain guide or as a forecaster and being able to bring that experience and the context of your work to the theory so that we can not only refine the theory to say, well, it works in these kinds of conditions, but it doesn't work in these kinds of conditions, but for us also to talk about how might we be able to put this into practice. So this is really, I guess, an open uh, call to the industry to engage with these ideas critically, uh, you know, innovatively think about how you can put them into practice and kind of feed that back to us so that we know um, how do we move this forward together. Mm -hmm. And we'll certainly link um, your contact information in the show notes if that's okay and, and people can, can get a hold of you if they want to do some collaboration on some of this. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. All right. Thanks, Laura. Thank you.
I certainly hope you enjoyed that interview with Laura. Laura, thanks again for making the time to sit down with us and share some of the research that you've been doing. Um, and thanks for doing some of the heavy lifting on that for us. Uh, so hopefully that sparks some interest in your brain and feel free to reach out to Laura. Uh, again, I'll, I'll put her info on the show notes. Um, I'm sure she'd love some, some collaboration with practitioners on some of this stuff. Uh, thanks again to you for listening. Appreciate your loyal listenership. Please reach out to me with any feedback that you have for the show. I've been getting some great emails lately, and, and thanks for your involvement. Um, also, some great suggestions on, on some topics here in the future. Um, if you are enjoying the show, please tell a friend. Just spread the word, spread the gospel of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Thank you in advance. Music today in the beginning of the show was Broke for Free with Warm Up Suit. And taking us out of the hour is Anatech with Operator. Those tracks are courtesy of the Creative Commons license and can be found at freemusicarchive.com. As always, thanks to Mike T for our artwork. You demand T. Don't forget to follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.